0: Amen. Turn to Matthew 24. That's a great song, though. His wounds have paid my ransom. If we had not had that ransom, none of us would be forgiven. Matthew chapter 24. If you would continue to look through the Olivet Discourse, we're getting into it. We will go through probably two verses today, moving right along. with two verses, but let's read together the first eight verses. It says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one lead you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet for nation will rise against nation And kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so that you will not go into birth pains, I am going to watch my clock today and take it off and set it here so I won't go past too long so I can get you out before the Super Bowl today. Literally, folks, people sometimes watch clocks. My very first church, one of the locals played for the Dallas Cowboys. He was starting fullback at that time before Moose Johnson uh, took over. His name was Todd Fowler. His father was the head coach at Van High School. Some of his friends, some of his men were members of my church. So when the Dallas Cowboys were playing at 12 o'clock at 10 till, those men sitting on the back of the church would take off their watches and start doing this. What they were saying was what? Wrap it up, okay? And if I went to five minutes still, seriously, they would get up and walk out to make sure that they got to the game in time. So I will try to get you out before the Super Bowl today at 5.30. So let's look real quickly, Okay. Keith Matheson, dean of Ligonier Academy of Biblical and Theological Studies, was listening to a radio program one afternoon on the topic of the rapture. Many called into the program asking questions, and one woman was firmly, firmly convinced that pre-tribulationism and dispensationalism were true. So when asked why she believed as she did, she stated... I believe in the pre-tribulation, rapture, and in dispensationalism because all the famous prophecy scholars teach it. All of them, according to her. She believed basically what her favorite authors taught. And this is kind of how we form most of our beliefs, those that sit in the pews. We take at face value, what someone says because they are using scriptures and they are scholars. However, there are hundreds of scholars for every one of those. There's hundreds of scholars from 1800s past who believe differently. So the question becomes, who's right? Who is right? Well, you have the opportunity as we get into this to decide what who's right, but I, I implore you to please check it out out for yourselves in scriptures. Be like the Bereans when they came to Paul in Acts chapter 17 if you remember that, Paul was teaching in the synagogues, this group had come, these Bereans had come, and they were commended in the book of Acts for opening up the scriptures and seeing and testing to find out whether or not Paul was saying things correctly. And then it goes on and says many of them believed afterward but some didn't believe. So be like the Bereans. I want you to be the same. So as we go through Matthew 24 and other related topics, study the scriptures to see if you can understand where I am coming from. I'm coming from it differently. And if you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. Because if we end up in the same place, heaven, we will find out who was right, whether it You're a dispensationalist or not a dispensationalist. Until then, we can discuss it and we can debate it without dividing. And we should, that should be our goal as we're looking at this passage of Scripture. So I want us to begin to look this morning at... The quick outline of the Olivet Discourse just real quickly. So we find in Matthew tra- chapter 24, first of all, there's an announcement of judgment. We talked about this last week. Seven woes are against are given against by Jesus against the ruling establishment and the religious system. And so Jesus declares to them... All the righteous blood shed on earth and the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zachariah, the son of Bachariah, are going to come against you. And this was fulfilled during this age, during this time, at the trial of Jesus, when Pilate says, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And what did the people say? Let his blood be on us and on our children. What a great thing to give to your children. Let the guilt of Jesus Christ's death be not only on us, but be on our children. And that is exactly what is going to happen as we see this. So we have the announcement of judgment. We have the assuredness of destruction in verse 2 of chapter uh, 24. We'll get there. We will see then the turbulence before the event. We're going to talk about the wars and the rumors of wars, the famines, the nations against nations, the kingdom against kingdoms, But we're going to see that oft times, if you're a futurist, you believe that everything is going to be in the future, and this is what Matthew is discussing in this time. Actually, there were earthquakes and famines and nations against nations in this time of the first century. We'll discuss that next week. We're going to see the persecution before the event. And I'm going to give you my take on the great tribulation and let you see from my point of view and you don't have to believe it that the great tribulation has passed i didn't want to get thrown at you know kind of thing, okay that it's passed and that we're not going to go through a great tribulation i'll explain that and let you decide We're going to look at the terror of destruction in 24, 15 through 28, where he's saying, flee. Hopefully you're not going to be pregnant at this time and you're going to be able to get out of Jerusalem. Flee from Judea. This is all described of the terror of the destruction that is to come. And we will look in depth at the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we're going to look at the person behind the destruction. The person behind the destruction, who is Jesus Christ Himself. Often we have Jesus Christ, dear folks, presented to us as Vodi Bakum, preacher Vodi Bakum says, a sissified Christ, where He's always love and gentleness and never judgmental, but we will see when we get to the 29th verse through 31st verse, that it is Jesus who is bringing this destruction, the things that happened 60,000 strong of a Roman army coming into Jerusalem and laying waste to it and killing everyone they could. We will look at that and we'll continue to see this. But first, as we go on to verse 32, Jesus is going to give us the lesson from the fig tree He's going to tell us about that, that a sign that things are near. We're going to see the recipients who will see these things, looking at the time indicators, the description of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, and the blessing of the faithful and wise servant. These are all in Matthew 24. So as we begin today, we're going to look just real quickly, then at the announcement of judgment. If you'd look over to verse 37. Jesus has already proclaimed those woes, uh, 37 of 23. It says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Dear folks, did the whole city kill the prophets? Not the whole city, not the whole, little children, but mainly it was who? It was the religious leaders the religious system those in charge basically as Jesus was bringing these woes against them and in fact in chapter 21 it says the Pharisees and the scribes realized that Jesus was talking about them it says and now he is lamenting over jerusalem they kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it how often it says i would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not always remember when that you is pronounced it's you in the first century that he is talking to It's not someone 2,500 years or 2,000 years from now. It's those people. It says, see, your house is left to you desolate. That's basically what he's saying. Desolate means it's going to be absolutely wiped out. And here's the assuredness of the destruction. I want you to pay particular attention to this. Here it says in verse 1 of chapter 24, Jesus left the temple. Now, why in the world would that be important? Remember, he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2. That was the very first cleansing. He now cleanses the temple again, which is a fulfillment of the cleansing laws of the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill all the law and the prophets, and he does it to the letter. You see, if you had some kind of pimple, some kind of blemish, some kind of leprosy, anything that you had, you had to go and cleanse yourself and report to the priest on the third day, and then again on the seventh day. Here it is, that's two types of cleansing. Therefore, Jesus comes and he says, and he cleanses the temple in John chapter two, the first time, then again reported here the second time, thus fulfilling everything that needs to be fulfilled. But it's interesting that this little word called left, Jesus left, basically means he just departed. But Mark in the gospel of Mark uses a total different word. He uses a word that basically means to be bursting forth. Now get this in this picture. Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple and then he bursts out, leaves it. He goes away from it. In fact, that little word can be used as divorce. Jesus is saying, I'm divorcing this place. I am leaving This place. In fact, we know from prophecy that God divorces Israel. We find that in Jeremiah, we find it in Ezekiel. He divorces Israel. Because divorce, you think about the results of a divorce, divorce is costly. I did a wedding back in December and I told the bride and groom, I said, isn't marriage grand? But divorce is about a hundred grand. So don't get divorced. It's costly. It's expensive. And what Jesus is saying just through this, what we call an act of prophetic drama, bursting out, leaving it behind, and going away. In fact, it's a fulfillment of Ezekiel 11. In Ezekiel 11, if you think about Ezekiel, you remember if you've read it, there is this picture of this quote unquote as some say a flying saucer that comes out of heaven but really it was a chariot that comes out of heaven and it depicts and tells the prophecy that the destruction of jerusalem is about to happen the temple is going to be destroyed and there was a first destruction of a temple He's describing it and saying, this is what it's worth. This is what's happening because you have wicked counselors. Then he gives a prophecy that says God is going to restore it. But after that, there is a part of Ezekiel where it says that the chariot and the glory of the Lord go up and disappear, leaving the temple. The glory of God literally departs away from the temple, God destroys it the first time. And now we have the same prophetic drama of Jesus Christ saying, I divorce you, I'm leaving you, I'm going. And it says in Ezekiel, which is real interesting, in Ezekiel, he departs and goes to the east and that chariot rests on the the Mount of Olives. Now, when we get here, where did Jesus go? It says he left the temple and he went at east to the Mount of Olives. The very same thing that God had told Ezekiel, Jesus acts out here. Because if you were Jewish in that age and you knew your Old Testament prophecy, which they did, very, very symbolic of what Jesus was doing and what Jesus was accomplishing. Now, as we begin to get into this Olivet Discourse, we begin to see that it's mentioned three times in the Bible. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, and it's in Luke. It's not in John. It's interesting. It's not in John because if you come around to my position you will believe and see that Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19 is a depiction of what Jesus is stating in Matthew chapter 24. So I will explain that when we get there because we're going to look at things, folks, in the future. We're going to, after we break this down, Matthew 24, we're going into the different topics. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church, we're going to talk about the beast. We're going to talk about the Antichrist. We're going to talk about the man of lawlessness. We're going to talk about the tribulation period, this thousand-year reign. We're going to look at it from Revelation. We're going to look at it and see what they may suggest. And it may not be what we think it is. So we're going to look at these kind of things. So in the Gospel of Matthew, he says, when they, he goes out And the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he says this, There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The gospel of Mark says, As he came out of the temple, One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then when you get to Luke, Luke says, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, as you're looking at your slide, you see a depiction of the temple area. It is a massive, massive area. And in fact, in the time of Jesus, it looks something like this, if you can see that. Now, let me point to you the little squares on the right-hand side of the slide. The one on the very far left, that's the size of an American football field. The small square, rectangular, rectangular, Then you see the two next to it. That is the size of just the temple area. It was a massive, massive undertaking started by Herod the Great. And Herod the Great died while he was doing the temple. This thing, according to John at the time of Jesus, had already taken 46 years to build. 46 years to build and it still wasn't completed at the time of jesus we learn that from john chapter 2 because jesus is talking about tearing down the temple of his body and the pharisees say what this thing's taken 46 years they thought he was referring to that temple well not yet but he was referring to the temple of his own body but it is a massive massive structure To the disciples, saying, Look at these wonderful buildings and these wonderful stones, to say, for Jesus to say, They're coming down, that was unbelievable to them. I want you to think about this. The temple was 16 to 20 stories high, that's one floor higher than the building depicted in the slide. That's 609 Main as it was under construction, downtown Houston. That's 15 floors. Now think about this of the temple. It's just utterly amazing about the temple. Outside the walls of Jerusalem as they had built walls, the walls that were protecting Jerusalem were 40 feet high. If you stand right back here by the baptistry and go straight up to our apex, it's about 36 feet. Get it down here on the floor and go straight up, you've got over 40 feet. Those are the walls of Jerusalem, the walls. The temple, 16 to 20 stories high. One historian said that the gates or the doors of the temple that were covered with gold were 40 feet high. Think about that. Doors, open those. Be a doorkeeper in the temple and having to push those things open and shut constantly. It was absolutely huge. It was amazing. This fellow by the name of Josephus, a Roman historian, writes this about the temple. And I know you don't like to be read to, but let me read it to you anyway. It says, Now the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or eyes for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it turn their eyes away they just would have they just as they would have done at the sun's own rays but this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance like a mountain covered with snow There were other historians that said when they were approaching Jerusalem and the sun was shining right upon the temple, it looked like a star shining in the heavens. That's just how magnificent this temple was that Jesus said, It's about to come down. It's amazing. Here's the description that Josephus gives of the stones. Of its stones, some of them were 45 cubits in length, five in height, six in breadth. That's 67 feet long, seven and a half feet high, nine feet thick. And some of the walls of Jerusalem around the temple were 15 feet thick. Basically, as you're looking at that picture, that's one of the walls in Jerusalem standing today. Those are some of the smaller ones. Those outlined in black, those are 45 feet long. Think about how much those things weighed. Now, here's another thing. Here's one of the things that the the Talmud said. If we could look at what it says there, it talks about he he who has not seen the temple of Herod has never seen a beautiful building. Of what did he build it? Rabbi Rabba, it says, of yellow and white marble. Some said it was blue marble. Some yellow marble, white marble, all mixed together. And they had, it was projected. In other words, they were staggered so they could put cement. And when they looked at it, it says, as you're reading, it looked like the waves of the sea. It was beautiful. If you would Google the flooring of the temple, and you'll find in the biblical archaeology review you will find out it just wasn't a dirt floor. They were beautiful mosaic tiles that ran the length of this beautiful temple. It's absolutely amazing. Now, if you could see that little Jewish guy praying at the wailing wall right there, see how massive those stones are? If you look right above his head, that's some, that's some plants growing out of the rock. And look to the, to the right of that rock. That's one big stone above there, weighing up to 60,000 pounds. It's unbelievable what is going on and what's going to happen to this temple. Here's a depiction, a drawing of what it actually looked like. You see the walls and you see the temple there where the smoke's coming out from the sacrifice. This is what the Romans came and tore down. This is a picture of where it was. It was the Temple Mount. And if you understand where the Temple Mount was, folks, this was a 37-acre complex. 37 acres that this whole temple took up. This is what the Romans actually destroyed. Folks, it took them, and we'll discuss this later in another sermon, it took them three and a half years to breach the walls of Jerusalem. Three and a half years. Y'all remember that because it's very important when we get over to the book of Revelation where it talks about a three and a half year period. We're gonna look at that and see what Daniel has to say about that. But this is what Jesus was saying to these people. He was saying, guys, Not one stone is going to be left upon the other. Religious leaders, you Jews, you have rejected the Messiah. And it's interesting that right outside of the temple, they had a complex built called the Tower of Antonio, Antonio Fortress, named after Mark Antony. It was huge in its structure. And in fact, it housed all the little Romans and the and the temple guards where they could look out over into the temple courtyard. If there was any kind of disturbance, quickly they could come down and they could have that taken care of real quickly. When Jerusalem was sacked, the Roman soldiers put that to fire. And also, along with some of the Jewish folks that were fighting against the Roman, put that to fire. And it quickly spread into the temple area. And here's something that's just a side note. Gold all throughout the temple, the temple complex, different places had gold, the doors had gold. The fire was so intense that it melted the gold and it creeped and melted down inside the cracks and the crevices of the stone. And the soldiers were given the authority to collect that gold as part of the bounty For you see, Titus was given a commission from Vespasian to come in and to take the city. And so he gathered people and armies from all different kind of countries, 60,000. They were basically mercenaries to come and to help destroy and defeat this Jewish uprising and defeat and destroy Jerusalem. So therefore, when Jesus said not one stone is left on the other, what were the Roman soldiers doing even though they were massive stones? They were going for what? The gold. The way to get it is topple these stones. Topple them back and forth and back and forth. And how did they do it? Who knows? But greed always accomplishes what it tries to accomplish, does it not? It really does. It's a lesson for us. But what does this all mean about this thing? Think about what this means Is the temple is coming down in this destruction. And you're thinking about it, and Jesus is saying not one stone is going to be left upon the other. He is basically sending them the message that he spoke of in Matthew 21, 43. He says, I now am the temple. Jesus says, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. He's saying, this temple, where you relate God coming in glory and dwelling here. This temple that you believe that the political Messiah is going to come and set up his reign and deliver you from the Romans. This temple is going to be torn down and I am the new temple. But here's something else that we need to understand, folks. If he is the temple and that temple resides in you, all those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ become a temple. You are the new temple. That's what it says in the scriptures. Let me give you proof from this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? Wow. Wow. You, Who is that? Anyone who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is what? Holy. So what are you? Holy. It's one of the reasons I... When I counsel folks and they come to me and they say things like, you know, I need to work on my self esteem, I say, no, you do not. The Bible tells you to kill yourself, to crucify yourself. You don't need a good self esteem, you need a good identity in Christ. And who you are in Christ is a holy temple unto Him. You are holy. Well, preacher, I don't act very holy. Well, it doesn't deny the fact that you are holy. That's your position. Practically, we do unholy things, but if we think concerning our position, we will act in a holy way. You are a temple, so therefore, be the temple. You are the temple. What about the next one? Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Quoting that verse that basically says, I will put a new heart within them. I will replace the heart of stone and give it a heart of flesh. As we go on to Ephesians chapter 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What did we just read in Matthew 21? Jesus what? You rejected the cornerstone. I am the true cornerstone. You rejected it. Here it is. And it says, in, the whole, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And then in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says, You also, as living stones... This is Peter, this is Peter talking about this before the destruction of Jerusalem happened. He is saying, look, you are the spiritual stones. You are the living stones. And you are being built up as a spiritual house. You're being built. I can't help to think that Peter was not thinking about this project of building the temple. 46 years it was under construction at the time of Jesus. The temple was not completed in Peter's time. It wasn't completed until 63 AD and just seven short years later, it was totally wiped out. That's a huge, huge building project. But Peter... I guarantee it, was thinking about this and saying, you, because Jesus has replaced the temple, you are being built up as a spiritual house for what? A holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Dear folks, here's what I want to see, and I want you to see, and I, I will end it with this. It says, every person... Basically, every person who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ is a living stone being added to the temple of whom Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. You are being built up as a spiritual house. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are a priest. You are a saint. Did you know that? We may not act like it, but the Bible says that we are saints. Paul directs that every time he writes a letter to the saints at, to the saints in. We are saints. We are priests. We are that way because of the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ who replaced the physical temple. Paul even says the same things in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God y'all remember the next part to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship if you go back to the old testament times folks what was it around the clock constantly the priests were there Always offering the sacrifices, always making sure that the sacrifices that were brought were without blemish, constantly, constantly, and constantly gathering sacrifices, burning the incense, is all going up before the Lord. They were spiritual sacrifices. You now are those priests. You are the ones who are to offer yourself as a spiritual, living, holy, acceptable sacrifice because you are the temple. That is what we are to be doing because Jesus has replaced this old temple, this old thing, destroyed it. And that was the end of that age. And we'll talk about that next week, about the age. What does it mean by the end of the age? Does it mean... 2,000 years from the time of Jesus or was it at that time? We will look at that next week. But I want to appeal to you, therefore, brethren, like Paul said, if you are a temple, how is your building program going? How is it? Let me throw this out to you, okay? Let me throw this out to you. bible says our bodies are the temple of the holy spirit how are you taking care of your body how's that working i know i'm about to step on some toes jerry bridges wrote a book called respectable sins those sins that we don't mention in public because it might be we might step on and offend people but how is your building program? God wants us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. As one preacher's, well, let me do it, put it this way. I wanted to write a book. And my wife won't let me write the book because she tells me it's going to be too offensive. But the book is going, was going to be entitled, Preacher, Why Are You Fat? Because I will go to conventions and I'll go to places... Where they will have preachers that have guts out to hear, can't button their coats, preaching and telling us to be disciplined. Is that not hypocritical? Yeah, it is. And they're telling us all these different things, and I just can't help, just can't help to think, okay, your spiritual house is expanding. <laughs> okay? Your building program is going and going and going. What are you doing? What are you doing? Especially us preachers, we ought to be be examples to the flock that we at least have some kind of discipline in our lives. We have to do that. That's part of it. That's what helps us to show other people that we are in control of our body through the Spirit of God. It's one of the reasons Paul says, I I buffet my body, but some of you have taken it and and changed that word buffet to buffet. I buffet my body. Okay. Be careful with that. We are called to offer our bodies as a spiritual sacrifice. How is that going? But we're also being built up as a spiritual house. How are you doing spiritually? Are you growing? Are you reading this word? Do you hunger and thirst after righteousness so that you can continue to grow? So that you can offer these spiritual sacrifices that you can come as you confess your sins and you stand clean before the Lord and say Lord use me I want to be able to sacrifice for you I want to be a servant for you I want to tell other people about you how are you doing spiritually that's one of the reasons we harp on it and one of the reasons I harp on it is that I love it when you come and you're actually carrying this to church and you're opening it up and you're reading it and I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to raise your, raise your hand if you got your Bibles today. But folks, when you don't come with the sword of the Spirit and reading it and getting into it, it tells me something. It does. Now you may be reading on your device. That's great. That's good. I can't see the devices I can see when you bring this and what we are to be as people of the book because how do we grow spiritually by reading the words of God this is where God speaks and we grow spiritually by that and we need to continue to allow this house to continue to be built and that needs to be on a daily basis so let me encourage you dear people Get into the Word of God. I told you this before. Get into a discipline where you're reading something. You're getting into the Bible, and you're reading it, and you're becoming built up. Get the motto. I was doing the same thing the other day. I was reaching for a piece of toast, and I went, oh, no Bible, no breakfast. No Bible, no breakfast. So I went and grabbed my Bible real quick and went out on the back porch and started reading my, my Psalms and reading and praying, and I'm like, oh, What a great time with the Lord. Go back in and grab my toast. Grain free. No sugar. Watching the body. So folks, let me encourage you. You are the temple. Do you see the magnificence of this whole thing? The magnificence that Jesus Christ tore all that stuff down. We don't have to come every year and make a trip to Jerusalem. We don't have to bring a sacrifice of a lamb. Jesus fulfilled that in himself. And therefore, if he is in you, you are now a temple of God. Worship. Worship in the temple. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have fulfilled these things for us, that we can be a part of your building program. Lord, I pray for every person in this room. Lord, that you would continue to build them up and help them to realize that they are the temple, holy and acceptable to you through the blood of Jesus Christ. So Father, I pray that we would grow and we would hunger and we would thirst and we would offer those wonderful spiritual sacrifices to you in honor of you and in what you have done for us. Let us be, just like that old temple, a shining light for strangers as they approach. And Father, that they will see something different about us, that we are adorned with your Holy Spirit and with Christ himself. Lord, I pray for that this congregation for that, and I ask it in Jesus' name, Amen.